Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This is a podcast that seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues that we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're not new to the podcast, welcome back. And if you're finding it enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review or a plug on social media. Our guest today is Sarah Holowinski, who quite recently was appointed the Washington Director of Human Rights Watch, but was for a long time the Director of the Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC, and in between these two positions served as a Senior Advisor on Human Rights in the Chairman's Office at the Joint Staff of the U.S. Department of Defense in the Pentagon, and as well served in the U.S. State Department in the U.S. mission to the United Nations under then-Ambassador Samantha Power. We actually got to know each other as early fellows in the Truman National Security Project many years ago. In this episode, we discuss Sarah's observations regarding the U.S. military's efforts to mitigate harm to civilians in armed conflict. And her focus is not so much the harm to civilians that occurs as a result of violations of international humanitarian law, but rather on mitigating the so-called collateral damage caused by armed forces that are complying with IHL. In her view, there is still far too much of that kind of harm and that there is much more that can be done to reduce it. Sarah published an essay on the subject in Foreign Affairs back in 2013, in which she argued that the U.S. had both ethical and self-interested strategic reasons for doing more to protect civilians from harm. And she explored some of the institutional and structural reasons why it was not doing enough and could do more. And then in a blog post in Just Security just a few weeks ago, she revisited the issue and concluded that not much had changed. And she cataloged the ways in which the United States military falls short and what needs to be done to improve. So we discussed these observations and arguments, as well as the insights that she gained in particular while working within the Department of Defense, including her explanation for why the military tends to be so resistant to doing more to investigate and acknowledge the harm that it does cause as well as to do more to mitigate harm to civilians going forward. And towards the end of our conversation, we discuss a war game type simulation that she designed and ran while we were both in the Truman Project and what it may reveal and illustrate about the resistance to policy change within government more generally. So all in all, some really interesting and important insights. So with that, I bring you Sarah Holowinski. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time for this. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Craig. Well, as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking all of our guests to share something about themselves that's a little bit off the wall or just something that maybe some of your colleagues don't know about you. Yeah. So you gave me 20 seconds to think about this. And I <laughs> I came up with a, a few examples that were really embarrassing. And so I have I have found one that is not which is some of my colleagues do know this because they were wondering why I was looking down while I was doing my Zoom calls during COVID. And it's because I COVID knit. So when I get really tired of looking at the screen and when I really need to focus, I knit blankets. And I, I can't tell you how many babies around the world now have a unique, original Sarah Holowinski COVID blanket. 
Wow. Well, I, I definitely would not have predicted that. You just do not really strike me as the knitting type. So. <laughs> Everyone can be a knitting type. All right. We'll get, this is a more, this is a more philosophical question, which we can get into later if we have time. All right. We have, we'll have to try to tie that back into your day job work. <laughs> and speaking of which, I think for much of your career, both in government and in non-governmental organizations, your work has been dedicated to the protection of civilians in armed conflict. And earlier this month, you published a short piece in Just Security suggesting that the United States in particular is still not doing enough to protect civilians in armed conflict. And indeed, you note at the outset of the piece that while there's been some progress, the overall picture remains pretty depressing. So I thought it'd be interesting to have you on to drill down into the issues of continuing disregard for the safety of civilians in armed conflict. And by way of sort of setting that up, maybe we could just first get a better sense of the roles in which you have been working on these issues, maybe starting with your position at Civic. Yeah, I feel like I've been working on civilian protection for an extraordinarily long time. And when I look back over my career, it actually literally has been an extraordinarily long time. I started at Civic um, as executive director, which is it's the Center for Civilians in Conflict. And some of your listeners may remember a young woman named Marla Ruzica, who founded the organization and was subsequently killed in Iraq on Airport Road by a suicide bomber. I took over that organization when I was 28 years old. In fact, Marla was 28 as well. Didn't know what I was doing, really. <laughs> Didn't know very much about international law or civilian protection, but knew that she had a really important goal and vision, which was to get her country, the United States, to focus on the harm that it caused with its own bullets and bombs and trying to get some sort of compensation, amends, apologies, some sort of dignity for the civilian victims in Iraq and Afghanistan who had suffered that harm. So I stayed there for about 10 years, actually, and was able to work with militaries in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Burma, um, which, of course, is such a sad case now. But it really gave me insight. It, it, was, it wasn't a typical advocacy organization. You know, now I'm at Human Rights Watch and we do a lot of naming and shaming, which is very effective. At Civic, we took a different tact, which was to work directly with the militaries and draft their standard operating procedures and try to get into their heads about what was their goal and how could we further their goal by also furthering civilian protection. And so I was able to spend a lot of time with militaries and sort of see, okay, here are the challenges, here are the stumbling blocks to civilian protection. And a couple of years after I left Civic, I created a position basically at the Joint Staff, which is for those of you who are not American, the Department of Defense, which we call the Pentagon for short, has two sides to it. And one is the civilian oversight in a democracy. We have civilian oversight of the military. And then the other side is the military itself. And that's the Joint Staff. I was a senior advisor on human rights to the senior most military advisor to the president of the United States, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And in that role, you know, was really able to take what I did at Civic and try to see it into some sort of policy change. Interesting. So we'll circle back for sure to talk more about your time at the Pentagon and to get a sense of, of what you learned being on the inside, so to speak. But subsequent to that, did you go directly to Human Rights Watch after the Pentagon or was there something in between I've forgotten? 
I didn't. I had a child, um, <laughs> which yes, is okay. <laughs> which is a big career move in and of itself, especially <laughs> if you're in Washington. It's hard to take out the time. But I, I had a child while I was at the Pentagon and I decided to, you know, Washington is a very it's one of those towns where it's hard to do any work unless you're working 24 right. seven. And so I decided to take some consultancies. And so I I worked around town doing doing things that I love and working on things that I love, but but not full time positions. So let's go back in time then to, I think a good starting point is in 2013, you wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs in which you made pretty strong arguments for why the United States should be doing more to protect civilians in armed conflict for both ethical and self-interested strategic reasons. And to be clear, as I understand it, you were suggesting that the U.S. was not necessarily violating IHL, that it was in compliance with the Geneva Conventions, but that the lawful killing and injuring of civilians to the extent that it was, was still both unwise and unethical. And the, the self-interested reasons had to do with the hostility and radicalization that civilian casualties was causing. And at the same time, you suggested in this piece that the U.S. had started to do better in Afghanistan and Iraq, but that there was a real risk that it was going to lose the lessons learned, that, that it hadn't formalized and created permanent positions to entrench these lessons. And so in 2013, you thought that there was a real risk that things were going to get worse. So before we fast forward to the most recent just security piece to see where that ends up, maybe we can talk about the foreign affairs piece and a little bit more about why you thought what the United States was doing was both unwise and unethical, how it had started to improve, and why you thought that those lessons were likely to get lost. Sure. We always walk a kind of tricky tightrope here when it comes to the U.S. and civilian protection, because on the one hand, we want to give the U.S. credit for, I'm not going to call it the standard bearer, but but it compared to lots of other nations, it does have a fairly robust set of policies and practices when it comes to civilian protection, civilian harm mitigation, I should say, we'll make a, a distinction between those two things, mitigating the harm that its bullets and bombs could cause. Whereas civilian protection, I often see as a little bit more proactive if you are actually going in to stop somebody else harming civilians. So on civilian harm mitigation, the United States, I was able to go down to CENTCOM, Central Command, and take a look at their collateral damage um, estimate methodology. It is extensive. You know, I took calculus through college, and I don't think I would be able to <laughs> get through the two week course very easily. And then they've got advanced courses. I mean, they they really put a lot of time and effort into developing that kind of thing so that civilians aren't harmed. At the same time, the U.S. of course has probably more military operations around the world than any other country, and so it has this big responsibility, in fact, to be even better than everyone else on civilian harm mitigation. The lawyers at the Pentagon will tell you, look, we always abide by international law. Um, the laws of armed conflict guide everything that we do. And in a lot of cases, you can see that that is true on civilian harm mitigation. They consider the harm that they cause to be, quote unquote, collateral damage. So not in violation of international law. At the same time, because of this onus on the United States to 
have, I'm not going to say even higher standards than other states, but it is constantly, the United States is constantly saying how good it is at civilian harm mitigation. Well, that makes it pretty easy to poke holes into, especially when you look at what policies and practices do exist. And so a lot of the practices that we saw in Afghanistan, so this is around 2009 under General McChrystal, he issued some tactical directives that were very good at lessening the harm that came to civilians. In fact, by pretty radical numbers, I think after he issued those tactical directives, civilian casualties went down by something like 40%. But tactical directives are not policies. They, they are sort of a, a one-off from actually changing the institution and entrenched policies that will continue forever. So we saw after a little bit of time of civilian casualties going down that they began to go back up, just given operational tempo or whatever it was. None of those improvements that we have seen sort of dotted over the timeline of U.S. counterterrorism missions for the past 20 years have actually improved U.S. policy. And so if we were to go, if the United States was to go into another war tomorrow in a place where we had not been before, yeah, there'd be some lessons to be learned from the past that would probably make it into those operations, but there's no standing civilian protection policy that that the U.S. can fall back on or that goes into any of its operational plans for future conflicts that it has to contemplate. Right. And and so you argued in, in the foreign affairs essay that the U.S. should develop both permanent policy on civilian harm mitigation and establish a permanent officer department within the Department of Defense to oversee and implement that policy. And as far as you know, I mean, was that ever done? Neither of those things was ever done, though there have been little, you know, we get really excited in the civilian protection community about tiny little steps forward. Um, So Congress a couple of years ago tasked one of the senior officials at the Pentagon to be in charge of civilian casualties. And that worked for a little while. He is no longer there. We've had a change in administration. We don't know what's going to happen in this new one. And in terms of a, of a protection policy, we do have a DOD instruction coming out. An instruction, you can consider it a policy, but it's really just a sort of note-taking of all of the practices that currently exist on civilian harm mitigation. And in fact, the instruction that is coming out, hopefully sometime early this year, We believe it will be mostly focused on investigations of civilian harm and making amends for civilian harm. So ex-Grasha compensation payments. None of that, of course, goes to real protection. So, you know, what do you do when you go into a new conflict? Do your operational planners have to take into account the civilian population? And in what ways do your battle damage assessments after you have hit something, do they include civilians and possible civilian casualties? Are you going to be talking with victims on the ground? Are you going to be talking with civil society about the data that they know? Are you going to make sure that your standards for considering evidence are a bit more broad so that you're not just so narrowly defining what you consider to be evidence that will either go to showing civilian casualties or not? So a lot of things will not be covered by this instruction, which means that we're really still lacking a comprehensive policy on something as important, or what the United States says is important, as important as civilian protection. 
and we'll cover a lot of the, you, you hit a, a lot of items in that list just there, which we'll come back to when we get to your Just Security, your more, more recent Just Security essay, in which you address a lot of those issues. Sticking with the foreign affairs essay for a moment, you also noted back in 2013 that one of the problems that you saw with the American, I don't know if it was actually a policy, but the American approach was that there tended to be a lot of knee-jerk denialism in the face of claims of civilian casualties or civilian deaths. There was a tendency on the part of not only the United States, but NATO in Afghanistan to just issue very quick denials prior to even having really conducted investigations. And so I thought maybe we could talk about that because, as you point out, when General McChrystal takes over in Afghanistan, he issues these directives to reduce, for example, night raids and a number of other things to try to reduce civilian casualties. And yet, even under McChrystal, there continued to be a lot of these denials of some pretty heinous incidents that turned out later to have involved civilian casualties and civilian deaths. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I, we were talking a little bit about my Pentagon position. And when I was there for two years, one of the things that I learned is that civilian harm is a very visceral, personal thing for people who are serving in the U.S. Armed Forces or who have served. And I, I think I knew that before, but being there shoulder to shoulder, as they say, with the military officers day to day and talking about these issues, I really saw it. You know, we would be working on countering ISIS policy and how that was going to look. And I would bring up the civilian population or what are you going to do about civilian casualties in ways that nobody in the room was doing, hence the importance of having a position like, like the one that I had. And, you know, the guys, mostly guys around the table would have that knee jerk reaction. And I questioned it from time to time, you know, like what I'm seeing in U.S. policy as being a knee jerk reaction is actually mirrored here in these individuals that I'm working with. And what I realized is that they all have these stories of being in Afghanistan or being in Iraq, thinking that maybe they did cause a civilian casualty or coming home to their families and really hoping that they hadn't. One officer took me aside after a meeting and said, I just want you to know, it's one of the proudest things that I carry with me is knowing that I never caused a civilian casualty during my three or four combat tours in Afghanistan, which I, the, the pride that he had on that count was remarkable. And so I think that is part of what's happening here when the U.S. sees allegations from organizations like mine saying 38 people killed at a wedding party, nobody wants to believe that. And certainly they don't want to believe that their operation was in some way violating international law. You know, so there's, there's the personal side right. of even if it didn't violate international law, we don't want to believe it. And then, oh gosh, what about that liability? What if we're liable for this in some way, and then it undercuts the force, it undercuts their operation, it undercuts their legitimacy and credibility on the world stage. Now, all of that is, is not to say that they should have that knee-jerk reaction. I'm, I was making the case constantly within the Pentagon that, you, you know, you guys have to stop this. It's been 20 years of knee-jerk reactions. You will go so much further with your credibility right. if you say... Okay, we see that allegation. 
we're going to take it on board. We're going to take it seriously. We're going to reach out to witnesses, which they never do. We are going to reach out to civil society, which may have some information, and we're going to match it with whatever data and intelligence we have. And then we'll come back to you with what we found. And that just seems to be somehow impossible to get into U.S. policy. Even today. Even today. Yeah. So we're, we're going to fast forward to the present, but, but it's striking. I mean, I, it's not something I've spent a lot of time studying, but just in, in the research that I have done and just in reading the newspapers and the blogosphere, you get this sense that there is this pattern of, you know, there's an incident, there are claims made of civilian casualties, there is a denial. And then weeks later, in dribs and drabs, there are begrudging admissions of some casualties, still a denial of the extent to which the claims are made. But then civilian agencies and NGOs bring evidence to suggest that indeed the casualties were far greater than even the begrudging admissions. And you're left with, you know, even for people like me, ex-military, there's a real lack of credibility in future denials. You know, so when there's an incident and the military issues the denial, there's a tendency to treat it with a great deal of skepticism. Yep, that's exactly right. And that was the case that I was sort of consistently making to the public affairs people who are the ones who who deal with most of these claims. You know, th- there are cases in which the combatant commands do take the data seriously that are coming in from civil society. We've had many cases of that happen. And at those times, we, we do see progress At the same time, the U.S. has such a narrow window for what is considered credible evidence that much of the testimony of witnesses or NGOs, civil society, or even, you know, GPS coordinates get thrown out. And then the U.S. can say, again, we don't admit to this civilian casualty because, well, the witness was wrong about the time of the bombing, or the witness was wrong about the day, or... The witnesses have a bunch of cousins that are named exactly the same thing. And so we couldn't track, you know, who was who. And and all of these things, of course, are well known in criminal justice, you know, in legal proceedings, like witnesses get things wrong. But But when it comes to this, there's just, there's very little room to make the case that civilians were harmed. So, I mean, let's, let's pause and sort of drill into that a bit, because especially on things like drone strikes. You know, there are these allegations that the United States military sort of categorically states that, you know, there were eight people killed. They were all insurgents. Claims are made by people on the ground that civilians were among the dead, that they were not insurgents. And there's this issue that the the military doesn't do any on the ground investigation. I mean, the, the, the denial is based or the assertion that they were all insurgents is based primarily on the video shot from the drone. There's little in the way of forensic investigation to talking to witnesses. So what's your sense, and particularly from the time that you were in the Pentagon, as to, first of all, why that is and how credible should DOD claims be in light of the the failure to investigate? Well, I think the very reason that the United States uses so many drones instead of boots on the ground is also the very reason why they don't want to go back in and interview witness a risk for the armed forces insofar as we are the United States is trying to keep as many people as possible off the battlefield by using those drones they also in a in a place where they're using drones for that reason 
you know, you would, as a commander, you'd be very reticent to send your guys and gals in there to start collecting evidence. In some cases, that is, I think, legitimate. And in some cases, it's also legitimate what they say about bringing harm to that community or family because you don't want people in uniform showing up. However, we have been making the case for almost 20 years now that there are many other ways to get those witness testimonies and to figure out what actually happened. You can do it through civil society. You can do it through cell phones and other technology. And certainly when it comes to things like battle damage assessments, which is what happens. So before a strike, you've got CDE, which is collateral damage estimates. After a strike is taken, you've got a battle damage assessment, a BDA. And what happens there is the the military is trying to figure out, did they actually strike what they meant to strike? The thing is, usually in BDAs, it is not standard or required that you need to consider, did you hit any civilians? Which is a little bit shocking. You know, if you consider like an Excel spreadsheet, have a column on civilian casualties. You know, it's it's sort of as simple as that. But nobody necessarily, unless there's a big uproar in the media or because of organizations like mine making one, people are not necessarily going back through the video footage and saying, oh yeah, here's where a child could have entered the screen or here's where something could have gone awry and maybe there were civilians in that building that we didn't see. You know, one of the one of the things that we found in conducting a Pentagon civilian casualties study when I was at the Pentagon, this is it's almost laughable. You can't see into buildings. So in Raqqa, so many civilians harmed because ISIS would take them as, certainly as human shields or they were hiding out and the U.S. would strike that building. And it, you know, it should go without saying that the U.S. can't see into buildings. Nobody can. But if you can't and you take that as a fact, then you change how you strike. You change when you strike. You take that into consideration. And that's still something that they don't take into consideration. It's such, a, such an interesting thing to me that if you're using drones, you really have to go back through and figure out what happened in each strike, if there is any possibility that a civilian was harmed. And in some cases, you can't. You can't see into that building. And so is it appropriate to actually be striking it or to be using that drone where you can't go back in? Right. And then, of course, there are, you know, in in the context of signature strikes, there is the question of what are the criteria for assessing individuals as being lightly insurgents, right? And so, I mean, Kevin John Haller and others have written about the nebulous criteria. The criteria have never been disclosed, you know, but we can infer what the criteria likely are. Sometimes it's just simply military age male within a certain proximity of, in Afghanistan, for instance, Taliban forces. That's sufficient criteria for a so-called signature strike. And then if the military is also using those criteria for identifying the dead as having been insurgents, if they're just military age males, it raises this question again as to how accurate those are, particularly in light of the fairly significant discrepancies between the numbers of civilians killed that are reported by various civilian agencies year over year in Afghanistan and Iraq and the admissions of the Department of Defense to, to civilian casualties. Right. And I think that so there's a lot of things that get in the way of accurate counting of civilian harm. First of all, 
deaths and injuries are a lot easier to count than the broader harm that civilians really do experience. So there's really no way of accurately counting the full scope of harm that comes to civilians. So deaths and injuries, fairly easy to count, although I'll explain why, why it's not in some cases in a minute. But, you know, damage to infrastructure, healthcare systems, you have a water pipeline that goes out and suddenly everyone has cholera. And these are things that are not noted by anyone aside from humanitarian agencies, and certainly they're not known by the American public. When it comes to deaths and injuries, yes, categorization of who is a civilian and who is a combatant certainly plays into the U.S. undercounting how many civilians it has actually harmed. We don't know the criteria. Those are classified and for obvious reasons. Signature strikes under President Obama, I believe that policy was rescinded either before he left the presidency or when President Trump came into office. And so there weren't as many, certainly there weren't as many signature strikes where you're targeting based on somebody's behavior rather than actually knowing who they are. But of course, the other thing that comes into this counting game that we're constantly trying to keep up with is that, you know, the U.S. leaves so fast from a particular place. And as we were discussing before, doesn't necessarily take as credible witness statements or the statements from media and civil society. And so nothing is forcing them to go back in and take a look at at what's happening and how many civilians have actually been harmed. You know, lots of people have tried to estimate lots of universities. Brown University did this. The Lancet did this. Air Wars is constantly doing this, trying to figure out how many civilians have been killed or injured by U.S. operations. And it's it's just nearly impossible. I would say that every count that's out there is probably an understatement. Wow. Even the counts by these civil society entities. Really hard to know, but there are a lot of places that they can't get into either. And so I think they try to estimate as best they can. I think they try to get witness testimony through other means than actually going into some of the places, for example, in Yemen that are incredibly dangerous. But it's really it's really hard to know. And of course, people who civilians who are who die afterwards, who who die months later from their injuries, you know, we're probably not counting those as much. Right. Incredible amount of harm caused. Before we move on from the foreign affairs article, I just it's interesting that you essentially assume that the United States is complying with IHL in that article. And you're really sort of saying, look, there are ethical and self-interested strategic reasons why you should be doing better, but you don't really question whether the United States is potentially sometimes violating IHL. But in your time at Civic, I mean, is that an assumption that you embraced? Or was your sense that there were times when the United States was in fact violating IHL? It's a really good question. It's not, it's actually not a question I've pondered all that much. I think, you know, at Civic, we, we were not dealing with the law very much. I am not a lawyer, so I'm not an expert on international law, though I do try to drop in a Latin phrase every now and then, just so people like you think I think I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) What we tried to do was focus on the kinds of policies and procedures that would make sure that the collateral damage as such, the the harm that the U.S. would consider not being a violation of international law, that that was minimized as much as possible. For things like, you know, the kill team, these sorts of terrible incidents where the U.S. was violating international law, 
we left those for other organizations to deal with. And so, but you know, of course there's a really gray area in there. I simply find my role as a civilian protection advocate to be more effective if I assume based on my experience that in fact, the US does take international law very seriously. And where it is important to point out that, you know, clearly violations have been made, I've often relied on others to make that case so that I can continue to, I guess, have the trust and have the relationships with the military that I think are so important for this very large piece of civilian harm that happens completely within the bounds of international law. That's what I've really concerned my career with is what, what do the rules not touch? Who do the rules not touch? That's who I want to, to help protect. Okay. And sort of fast forwarding to just a few weeks ago, you, you published this short blog post in Just Security, which was deceptively short, but it incorporates by reference a number of other studies and reports by colleagues of yours. And the overall tenor of it is that while there's been some progress, the overall picture for protection of civilians and harm mitigation in U.S. conflicts is quite bleak. And you begin with the issue of tracking and reporting of civilian casualties. And so I gather that, in your view, not enough certainly has changed since the piece you wrote in Foreign Affairs sort of eight years ago. That was exactly my my point in publishing this. I never intended to publish something like this, especially so early on in the Biden administration. I've actually had colleagues and mentors write to me and say, oh, you know, Sarah, go take a walk in the sunshine. It's okay. <laughs> you know, we've got a new era of hope. It's okay. But it's not okay because this piece came out of having meetings with people who were part of the transition team, Biden's transition team from Trump to Biden, who were going to be senior officials at the Pentagon and at the State Department. And we would get into the issue of civilian protection. And I would have to say, guys, after so many administrations, this isn't about the Trump administration being bad on civilian protection. This is about America not living up to its rhetoric about how seriously it takes civilian protection. And so I just started writing a list of all of the things that I had advocated for over, you know, nearly 15 years and what things had not come to fruition. And I try to be really clear with administration colleagues that this is not damning to a particular administration, nor is it damning only to people in government. You know, I've been in civil society for a lot of this time. I have also been in the Obama and the Trump administrations trying to change this. It's as much on my shoulders as it is on other people's. So I take blame or responsibility for not for not having gotten these policies and procedures and, you know, ways of doing business in armed conflicts done. Really, they should be done by now. So let's talk a bit more about your time in the belly of the beast, so to speak, to the extent that you're not bound by security clearance issues. What was your sense from your time in the Pentagon? What was the resistance? And what are the reasons why it's so difficult to implement, for example, something as simple as establishing a position to be responsible for civilian harm mitigation within the Pentagon? 
Craig, I still have not figured that out. I can't, <laughs> even after so many years of pushing and of hearing the pushback and of actually being in the belly of the beast, it was, I mean, I was in a basement, so I actually was in the belly <laughs> of the Pentagon. I haven't been able to figure out where that comes from. You know, there, the Pentagon has an extraordinarily lot of money, far more than the State Department, which speaks to our culture and speaks to how we make foreign policy decisions. But it was constantly this argument that we don't have the money. We can't create another position. There's not, you know, the 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 appropriate level to have a position like this is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Well, you know, we've got 20-something DASDs, as we call them, and we want to get down to about a dozen, and so we can't add another one. You know, there's these very practical, tactical arguments made that are very hard to push back against because who is going to create the position? And it's not going to be the joint staff because they don't have any purview over the policy roles. It could be the Secretary of Defense, but as soon as, you know, as soon as a Secretary of Defense would start talking about a civilian casualties position, people would say, well, but you know, we, China's this major threat and we don't have enough people on the China team. And what about somebody focused on COVID or Russia or there are so many arguments that come up, and and I do think that people in the U.S. military and in the U.S. defense agency, in the U.S. government, do believe that the U.S. has the most progressive, most robust civilian protection apparatus of any other nation. So why why would we need another position? Why would we need a policy? Why you know? And as much evidence as you throw at them, including this piece with a list of things that are still not done, they would say, yeah, but we do it better than anyone else in the world. Right. It's, it's fascinating. So referring back to the foreign affairs piece, you, you sort of make both ethical and self-interest strategic reasons. I, I can see that the ethical reasons would perhaps find less purchase among the military, although some in the military might say that's unfair. But... It's really interesting that the strategic self-interested arguments, right? This notion that by killing and harming civilians, you are radicalizing and just fostering a kind of hostility that is going to blow back against American interests. And that therefore there is a real self-interested reason to minimize those, you know, the harm to civilians doesn't find more purchase within, you know, the military establishment. The thing about creating something important and big in the U.S. government is that it needs to have a champion. And we've got so many things working against us in the U.S. government, including that the military rotate in and out all the time. People in positions of of senior leadership roles rotate in and out all the time. And nobody has made this their you know, nobody has made this there. Like, this is what I am going to do. I'm going to make sure that we have what we need on civilian protection. And the evidence that you have referred to about, you know, recruitment into extremist organizations, this sort of thing, I haven't seen it strong enough to change minds. I haven't seen it strong enough to change a politician's mind that going after ISIS in a particular way or going after AQAP, which he or she believes the voters want 
and will keep them safe. He or she doesn't know how to do that while also paying attention to all of the evidence saying that civilian casualties are actually fueling recruitment and that. So, so what they do is they throw money at programs at USAID, like, like countering violent extremism, which in some ways have violated human rights and, and are possibly not even effective. So it, it's been a very hard thing to get policymakers to see that strategic argument. And if they do see the strategic argument, going back to something that I said before, is that they do believe that the U.S. does it best. And they believe that the U.S. is not causing as much civilian harm as we say it is. And so could it really be true that like ISIS's ranks are filled with cousins and nephews and nieces of somebody who was killed by the U.S.? I think it's very hard for them to believe. And so maybe that gets it. Another phenomenon that we, we had talked about perhaps discussing today, which relates to a sort of war game simulation that you ran when we were both in the Truman Project. And, you know, the Truman Project at its annual conference used to frequently have these war games or simulations that were quite fascinating. And you planned and ran a simulation, as I remember, was about whether, and it was early in the Obama administration, as I recall, whether the government should recommend to the president that the policy of targeted killing continue or even be ramped up. And I think we had two or three hours and everyone in the group had been assigned a role. As I recall, I was White House counsel. And most of them were at the deputy principal or below level. I don't think it was a principal's level meeting. But we engaged in heated discussions among the various groups and then were to come back to you as, as sort of you were the president to get the recommendation as to whether or not the United States should continue with a robust targeted killing program. And what was really fascinating to me and, and it revealed the phenomenon which I saw in other war game simulations that Truman, the Truman Project ran, but was most clear in yours because what you did was ask everyone for the recommendation and the recommendation was by a vote of, you know, I, think, I forget how many there were, but 20, 20 to two, I think me and one other person were resisting and, and recommending against targeted killing and everybody else was, oh, no, no, we have to continue the program. But then you asked everyone, what did they personally believe outside of the role that they had been assigned? And over 50% of them switched their vote which I thought was, was really actually quite disturbing. And, you know, Daniel Ellsberg, in his book on the Pentagon Papers, talks about this very phenomenon in the Pen when he was in the Pentagon working in, I think, the, the deputy to McNamara. I forget his, his name off the top of my head, but he was working for this deputy and saw this phenomenon, reported on this phenomenon, where his boss would tell him why he vociferously opposed some policy and then they traipse into a meeting and he'd see his boss support it with some passion. And so I'm wondering whether, I mean, first of all, you, you know, feel free to tell us a bit more about the simulation, but also whether you saw that phenomenon of people in government sort of taking positions that they thought was expected of them rather than articulating the positions that they actually, actually believed in, if you saw that while you were in the government itself. Yeah, that simulation was fascinating to see that. And certainly we see it in government. And I, I wish I was a psychologist and could figure out exactly what it is. But I think it's, I, I think part of it is groupthink. I think part of it is believing that 
for example, continuing a targeted killing program is less risky than questioning it. So if you go with the flow, if you believe that there's some kind of wizard behind the curtain, right? Like we think about the US government as this, as sort of Oz and like, there's not just ordinary human beings running it. There are ordinary human beings every single day making decisions that make up US policy. And that's what US policy is. It is not, there. there's nobody behind the curtain. These are all staffers who are making up these decisions. But even when you get into government, you kind of, when I was, you know, a staffer at the State Department or at the Pentagon, I would sort of think, all right, well, that's US policy. I can poke some holes in it, but would I want to fundamentally change it and put it in a new direction? Well, I don't, what would that do? What are the ramifications? And usually this inertia behind policies like arms sales, like we're going to continue arms sales to, you know, Egypt, somebody's stepping in the way of that and saying, no, wait a minute, we're going to question this whole thing. That takes energy, it takes time, it takes political will, it takes the backing of some sort of leadership, otherwise you're out because you're not part of the group think. And I also think there's this piece that, like what are the risks of stopping a targeted killing program? And we don't. nobody in, in government really has the evidence of what that is. Right. What would actually happen? Oh my God! Would everything fall apart? Would we be? Ta- would we? Would we have another nine eleven? You know, that was constantly what was hanging over everyone's heads. Would we have another nine eleven? Well, could you do it not with drones, but with boots on the ground? Because that would actually have some skin in the game. Well, but you know, then we're putting American men and women in harm's way, and the, you know, the election may not turn out well. So, part of my job now at Human Rights Watch is to try to provide policymakers with the evidence they need and the facts and the data of if you went in this direction, which is better for human rights or civilians or whatever it is, here are the good things that would happen. Here are the bad things that will happen if you don't. I mean, policymakers need a lot of help doing this kind of thing. And I think they're just very risk averse. That was an incredibly long way of saying, I have no idea what's going on there. <laughs> but, you know, what strikes me is, is what struck me then and, and continues to intrigue me, but, but I find also most disturbing was that these people, and most of these people, it, it should be said, were in government, right? They were, they were yeah. working on the Hill or they were working in the executive or they were on their way to working there. What was most disturbing was I would be much more sympathetic if they simply were articulating their actual beliefs and that for all of the reasons that you suggested that they were, you know, they were concerned about changing policy and that they therefore were sort of invested in this. And like, I would get that. But I found most disturbing that a lot of them actually were arguing very strongly in the course of the three hours for why we had to continue this targeted killing program. But then we're asked what their actual personal opinion was. They actually held very divergent views. And so they are here, they have been arguing for something that they actually didn't believe in, simply because they thought that that was what was expected of the role that they were filling, which is a really disturbing phenomenon. Yeah. Or because those are the arguments that they knew. Right. Those are the, you know, that's what they had heard. And that's, and they trust the people in government to be making the right decisions. And so the arguments that you already know are the ones that are easiest to go with. That's it. That's interesting. Well, listen, Sarah, I have kept you for uh, more time than I had had asked for. And this has been fascinating. We could go on for at least another hour talking about all of these things and and drilling into each of the 
elements in your list in dust security, and I, I, I will post it on the website, and I commend everyone to to look at each of the because each item is backed up by several links to other studies that that support the the point. So there's a lot there. But before I let you go, I wanted to ask you for three recommendations, something that you think people have perhaps not been reading or should be reading or things that you have found interesting in, in your recent reading. Uh, that actually assumes that I've been reading anything. I will, <laughs> <laughs> here's, what, here's what I'll recommend. First, if you haven't read Hugo Slim's Killing Civilians book, now this came out a, a long time ago, but it's very good. It describes the seven different ways in which states kill civilians. And it's it's remarkable just for its big picture. Wow. And really, even for me, who has been doing this work for so long, was a, was a wake-up call. It was really great. The second is Jessica Matthews' recent piece in Foreign Affairs, which describes American foreign policy and democracy. And I thought she had some really good points to make. Again, very big picture, which I like very much. And then the podcast Deep State, which is one of my favorites each week to catch up on. It's David Rothkoff talking with Rosa Brooks and Corey Shockey, two of my other favorite commentators. And I just in this in this new world of the Biden administration, I think they have really smart observations about where the U.S. can go and how it can get there. So there you go. And I, I can also listen to a podcast while I'm walking outside to get some air, so. Right, no, I'm always up for new podcasts. I have not listened to that podcast, so that is wonderful. I will check that out this afternoon. So Sarah, thank you so much for spending time with us. Best of luck in your relatively new role at Human Rights Watch. We'll be watching to see you change the world. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) No pressure, thanks again. Thank you for having me and hello to all of your listeners and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact information is on the website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook. Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at, at JibJabPodcast for updates on coming episodes and other commentary. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.